Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Everyday Black History. Welcome you all. Um, I hope, you know, that you had a great weekend. Um, If you didn't have to work yesterday, it was a nice three-day weekend. Happy Tuesday to you all. Hope you had a great weekend. Maybe you got to go away and do something. Maybe you just got to have a, a, a staycation, but you just got to rest. Whatever it was, I hope you enjoyed whatever it was you were doing. And now, you know, today you got to get back to work and get back into the swing of things, if depending on your schedule. But hopefully today was a good day for you as we are settling down into uh, the evening time. So hopefully you had a great day and you are ready to enjoy a little bit of uh, black history as we do here on Everyday Black History. Now today, um, you know, concludes Hispanic Heritage Month. And as I mentioned before, you know, we... Um, highlight everyone in the uh, African diaspora. So, you know, Afro, uh, Latinos of African descent, uh, Africans, uh, Black Americans, you know, are all highlighted here. And for um, Hispanic Heritage Month, we've just been highlighting uh, different um, Latinos of African descent who um, have just, uh, you know, uh, contributed to uh, Black history and Black culture, uh, Black culture, and, and and contributed in their own ways. Just as we do with everyone who we highlight in everyday black history. And so there's, you know, so many, you know, people to highlight. So, of course, you can't just fit it in a month, you know, and and we're not going to allow just the month of Hispanic heritage for us to honor our um, brothers and sisters, um, Latinos who are of African descent. So we're going to continue to do that, you know, throughout the years. We always have done because there's so many more that we can name and who's accomplished so much. So... Um, but on the final day of Hispanic Heritage Month, we're going to be honoring Celia Cruz. Now, if you don't know who she is, I suggest you go look her up. You know, Celia Cruz is uh, one of the most uh, well-known, uh, um, you know, uh, South, uh, Latin American singers of all time. Um, she was a, uh, you know, Cuban singer. She's from, you know, Havana, Cuba. And um, she rose to fame during the 50s and had a long and stellar career. Uh, she um, is known as the Queen of Salsa or the Queen of Latin Music and she had a career that spanned from Cuba to Mexico to Puerto Rico to the United States she worked with um, all the well-known Latin uh, musicians and composers and uh, labels and created uh, standards in Latin music and all her music was based off of um, Afro-Cuban rhythms and you know, she came to prominence, you know, because of the fact that she can do Afro-Cuban music, um, which is, you know, a lot of the uh, the basis for, you know, a lot of Latin music or uh, salsa music. Um, but just a little background on her. She was born uh, in Havana, Cuba on October 21st, 1925. And uh, her father was a railway, a railway stoker. Her mother was a, her mother was a house housewife who took care of uh, extended family, and she was the oldest among fourteen children. So she came from a big family, and um, due to um, the musical climate in in uh, Cuba at the time, she um, had a very diverse uh, listening palette. You know, she listened to uh, many different um, musicians who influenced her adult career later on in her life. And despite the fact that she was Catholic, she still learned how to sing uh, Santeria songs from a neighbor who practiced the religion. Santeria is a uh, religion um, that um, is of Yoruba origin, um, 
but it was developed in Cuba among among the West African descendants. So uh, many, um, you know, black Cubans and many people in Latin America um, observed the uh, Santeria religion. And she learned how to sing these songs from this neighbor. And she uh, studied the words to Yoruba songs um, from another uh, woman who was a Santeria singer. And um, she made various recordings of this uh, religious genre, even singing backup for other Santeria singers. So she learned it when she was, you know, as, as a young age. Um, as a as a teenager, she was taken to cabarets to sing, but um, her father encouraged her to become a teacher. And so, um, she at the high school she attended um, the normal school for teachers in Havana with the intent of becoming a literature teacher, because um, at the time being a singer wasn't a practical or respectable career. But when her, when one of her teachers told her that an entertainer can make in one day what a Cuban teacher earned in a month. From then on, she studied music theory, voice, and piano at Havana's National Conservatory of Music starting in 1947. Uh, From then on, she um, went to Havana's radio stations and she sang in different um, contests. And a lot of, and she most of the time she won the first prize. And it would range from different prizes from a cake to silver chains, as well as opportunities to participate in more contests, but she always won. You know, in these early ages, just showing the the talent and the star that was going to emerge later on. Now, her her early recordings uh, started in 1947. Um, as we mentioned earlier, she had the ability to sing Afro-Cuban music, and so she was asked she was asked to join you know many different groups from well-known Cuban singers of the time, and um, uh, she was hired. She was hired. She, she was hired as a, as a singer, and she uh, um, was met with a great success. And she did so well with the during these early years that she was able to travel to Mexico and Venezuela, where she was able to make her first uh, recordings, um, singing with a group of dancers that was uh, founded by name by a man by the name of uh, uh, Rodney Nera. Um, but uh, she continued to sing on musical programs um, during this time, uh, even performing with groups that did Santeria music. And um, she made several recordings uh, during this time uh, with, uh, with another label uh, that was... With, actually, no, she, she did several recordings known um, with a group known as uh, Coro, Yoruba y Tambores uh, Bata. And uh, these recordings were released later on. Now, her big break came in 1950. Um, a uh, group, a, a band by the name of uh, Sonora Matancera, um, their singer at the time had went back to her native, which was Puerto Rico. And so they were looking for a new singer and uh, Celia Cruz jumped at this chance. And uh, she auditioned and by one month later, she was asked to be the uh, the band's lead singer. And um, in her first uh, rehearsals, where she met her, her future husband, who was the band's trumpeter, and she debuted with the group on August 3rd, 1950. And initially, she wasn't uh, met with enthusiasm. But uh, just a few months later, when she recorded her first songs with the group, it was a resounding success. By December of ni- that same year, 1950, uh, she was uh, a 
you know, successfully singing um, with the uh, Sonora Matacera group. And uh, her uh, relationship, um, collaboration, or musical marriage with this group lasted for 15 years in which 188 songs were recorded, uh, some of which became staples. Uh, her first gold record was um, uh, recorded with this group, and she made her first trip to, to the United States in 1957 when she came to receive the award for having a gold album. At that time, you know, when you had a gold album, that meant you sold a million copies. Um, and while she was here, she got to perform in New York at the St. Nicholas Arena, which was a ice rink that was in uh, New York City over by what we call Columbus Circle at that time. Uh, during that time, she with um, Sonora, with the group Sonora Matancera, she actually uh, even performed in some films as well. Um, you know, mostly Mexican films, but it was the her early. Um, it was the first time where she was, but she got a chance to dabble in film, which is what she was able to participate in later on in her career. Now, during the '60s of the, um, you know, following the Cuban Revolution. Um, uh, work in Mexico um, came about because, as you know, with, with the regime changes, um, you know, music became uh, nationalized, and uh, the Cuban, the new Cuban regime, uh, looked looked down on, on on them because they accepted work from um, other other countries, uh, specifically the United States. So um, she was exiled from Cuba, and she was forbade uh, to return uh, to Cuba. Because of this, because of this regime change, you know, when Castro took over, um, when and during this time, you know, a lot of things was going on in her personal life. Her parents, her dad died during this time. Her uh, mom got sick, uh, and you know, with her mother being sick, she wasn't even able to go back home and see her, take care of her. Um, and unfortunately, her mom in, in uh, 1962, just a couple of years after, you know, her being exiled, her mom died and she wasn't even able um, to go back and, and, and bury her mother. She died from uh, bladder cancer. She wasn't even able to to bury her mom because of um, her being in exile. But she proved to be a voice uh, for the Cuban people, even while in exile here in America. She... Uh, uh, made her first uh, tours outside of America, visiting Europe and Japan with uh, the with with um, Sonora Matancera, and they performed with uh, Tito Poirier during this time um, when going on tour with him to Europe and Japan. And um, as mentioned, she was with this group, some um, Sonora Matancera, for 15 years, and a lot was accomplished. And um, after that, she began a career, um, her solo career, uh, where her husband also left the band, Sonora Matancera, to become her representative, arranger, and her personal director. And they had not just a marriage, but also a uh, musical marriage in a sense where they were, uh, you know, working together musically as well. Uh, she began to perform with Tito Pontier, uh in 1966 she joined his she performed with his orchestra and they um um collaborated in and and did four albums together and again more signature songs were created between the collaborations of celia cruz and tito pointier and uh another relationship was formed 
in uh, the 1970s, there was another important relationship for her. Uh, Tico Records was a record label that Tita Pony was was signed to, and it was a well-known uh, uh, label that that uh, specialized in Latin music. But the premier um, salsa uh, record label was Fania Records. And in 1974, Fannie Records acquired Tito Records, and um, they were they signed Taylor Cruz to one of their imprints, where she remained from uh, 1973 until 1992. So a long and fruitful career was started then as well. Um, when she uh, was when she joined Fannie Records, she joined the Fannie All Stars, which was a salsa supergroup, um, which featured uh, the most popular performers. On the Fanny Arasta, and the Fanny Arasta was the, you know, as far as Latin music, you know, it was like the the biggest names in Latin and salsa music. So she joined this group, and with them, she, uh, you know, went traveled from Puerto Rico all the way to what was known at the time as Zaire, um, which is now the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. But you know, she toured all over with them to Puerto Rico, to Africa, back to Puerto Rico. And her uh, live recordings were actually a part of the Rumble in the Jungle event. The Rumble in the Jungle was a boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman uh, back in the 1970s. And her performance was a part of that event. So, you know, she was also tied to history in that regard. Now, she recorded her first album for Fannie Records in 1974 in collaboration with uh, one of the owners of the label, uh, Johnny uh, Pacheco, and uh, they um, uh, their, their their album, the collaboration album that they did was a commercial success, and um, it uh, its lead single was also a hit as well. She continued to participate in documentaries about Latin culture, um, such as the documentary film Salsa, um, where she uh, also where she was on um, uh, featured with other figures like Dolores Del Rio and Willie Colon who also became another collaborative partner of hers, where they did uh, um, several albums together in uh, the 80s. And uh, when she toured with him, with Willie Cologne, uh, she uh, wore flamboyant costumes, which uh, included uh, colored wigs, uh, tight sequin dresses, and very high heels. And it's like you think about it, you know, for those of us in my generation, you know, we grew up with Little Kim. We remember Little Kim with the colored wigs. But, you know, Celia Cruz was doing that, you know, before Little Kim, way before Little Kim. So, you know, again, you know, she just continued to contribute to the culture, you know, by her style. Her fashion style became so famous that one of them was acquired by the Smithsonian Institution. And um, when the exhibit was... uh, was uh was was uh, created for her a lot of her outfits was uh shown in the exhibit throughout her career he she even got so famous in the in the 70s and 80s that she even got endorsements she endorsed uh, commercial airlines in puerto rico and she uh, sung jingles for radio stations and other well-known companies showing just how widespread her uh, career had had gone and how famous she had gotten um, by 1982, she reunited with Sonora Montesera, and they recorded another album together. And at this point in her career, she's had such a long, you know, she had a illustrious career that she was receiving tribute for her, um, for her work. And then she received tribute in 1982 at the Madison Square Garden 
in New York. And uh, she also participated in one of the largest free entry outdoor concerts that the Guinness Book of Records at the time said was the largest with an audience of 250,000 people. Um, and that was in 1987. Um, and uh, by 1988, um, in 1990, she won her, by 1990, excuse me, she won her first Grammy Award um, with, with an album, uh, Ritmo and El Carazon, which she recorded with uh, Ray Barreto. And she... Um, uh, continued to perform with uh, the groups that she made many hits with like Sonora, Montesera she performed with them in Central Park she continued to even do reunions with uh, the Fania All-Stars whenever uh, they got together and uh, did anything so she was always um, continuously active you know um, even after already having performed for over 30-35 years now by 1990 she was able to return to uh, uh, Cuba and um, she was invited to make a presentation at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. And uh, when she came um, out for this presentation, she took in a bag a few grams of earth and dirt from Cuba. Um, and she took that back with her because she always wanted a piece of her, of her home with her. And um, that dirt was actually put in her coffin uh, when she died. But we'll get to that later on. Um, she received the National Endowment for the Arts, which was awarded to her by President Bill Clinton, which is the highest recognition granted by the United States government to an artist. She, um, as mentioned, she uh, during the 90s, she began to act more. She made uh, present musical presentations in Mexican and Cuban films. And in uh, 1992, she made her American film, film debut in a movie called Mambo Kings. And um, she continued to act as a television actress in uh, Mexican telenovelas, as well as in American uh, in TV movies and in small American films. Um, uh, she even played in a Mexican telenovela in 1997, uh, where she uh, played the role of a black woman who gave birth to a white daughter. <laughs> you know, so um, she was getting her acting on during this time, and even. She, at this point, she was, you know, still so popular in 1997 that San Francisco named October 25th Celia Cruz Day. And also during this time, she also collaborated with Wyclef on the song Guantanamera, which was on Wyclef's album. And that was another song that brought her to, you know, a new audience. Even myself, you know, uh, when that song came out, I was a you know teenager and it helped open my eyes to who she was and her music and contribution to music. Um, you know, and just like hip hop, you know, does, it was like a musical education for us, you know, so she was still continuing to perform well into the late nineties. She, uh, was, uh, inducted into the international Latin music hall of fame. She continued to perform with legendary, uh, artists like Luciana Pavarotti in, in, in concert. She, um, uh, was making tributes to Aretha Franklin with Mark, with Mark Anthony, uh, back in 2001 for VH1, uh, she was awarded her first Latin Grammy also uh, for um, an album she did in 2000, Celia Cruz and Friends, A Night of Salsa. And she recorded that again with uh, Tita Poitier, who died um, shortly after the album came out. But even during this time, late 90s, early 2000s, she was continuing to work and continuing to put out you know, great music, but she even 
um, venturing into different styles um, with uh, Caribbean rhythms that was influenced by hip hop and rap music. And um, this album actually won her her, her second Grammy um, and her third Latin Grammy. So uh, she continued to perform. She uh, performed at Central Park Summer Stage in 2002. Uh, which was released later commercially as a commemorative uh, CD in 2005 for their 20-year anniversary. They released the her performance in 2002. Um, she even appeared on Dionne Warwick's albums during this time. Dionne Warwick uh, released a few albums during this time that she uh, did duets with Shelia Cruz um, in uh, 2002 and 2003. Now, in March 2003, she uh, was honored Telemundo, which is a Spanish language channel, produced an aired a tribute, um, that, a tribute special honoring Celia Cruz, um, entitled Celia Cruz Azuka. And it was hosted by Mark Anthony and Gloria Estefan and uh, many well-known performers of Latin music and, you know, soul music came out to show, show out for her and give her the proper tribute. Um, Patti LaBelle, uh, you know, uh, Gloria Estefan, as we mentioned, um, uh, Paulina Rubio, Victor Manuel, Jose Feliciano, um, Gloria Gaynor, you know, well-known people came out to uh, show tribute to Celia Cruz and uh, show respect for her, for her illustrious career, her long career. And uh, this was her final public appearance. Uh, This is her final public appearance uh, because it was discovered prior to that um, that she had an aggressive uh, brain tumor and she underwent an operation to remove it um, so that she can resume her career uh, but um, on the afternoon of July 16, 2003 she died at her home in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey at the age of uh, 77 um, her wishes was that her mortal remains were first transferred to Miami for two days to receive uh, homage for uh, the, to receive the, the homage of her Cuban exile admirers. Uh, it was it was to return and finally rest at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York. And as we mentioned before, um, some of the the Cuban soil that she had taken when she went to uh, Guantanamo Bay in 1990 that was placed in her coffin with her, um, placed in her tomb with her um, as she was laid to rest. But uh, her legacy lives on. I mean, she was honored many years before her death, as we talked about, as well as afterward. There's a Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame that was presented to her in 87. The There was an asteroid that was named after her, 5212 Celia Cruz in 1989. Celia Cruz Way was named after her in Miami. In 1991, uh, she there was a stamp that was commissioned in her honor. In uh, 2011, the National Museum of American History, um, as we as I mentioned before, they uh, did a um, an, an exhibit on her that that opened um, in uh, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington D.C. Um, called Azuga, which is a exhibit celebrating the life and music of Celia Cruz. Uh, it highlights important moments in her life, career, um, her life and career through photographs, personal documents, costumes, videos, and music. So, no doubt that's uh, that was a cool exhibit. Um, that was back in uh, 2005 that that exhibit opened. Um, 
there was even a musical school that was opened up in the Bronx, named after her Celia Cruz Bronx High School of Music. And her husband, uh, Pedro Knight, before he died, he was able to go and speak to the students and share stories with them about her life. Um, the Cuban-American community in Union City, New Jersey, uh, heralded its annual Cuban Day Parade uh, by, dedica- by dedicating it its new Celia Cruz Park uh, in her honor on June 4th of 2004. And uh, there were other similar dedications to her around the world um, during these uh, Cuban, uh, these Cuban American parades or Cuban par- um, uh, parades honoring Cuban history. So um, you know, Celia Cruz's legacy lives on. Um, there's even a, there was even a documentary on Netflix that was like 80 episodes long, but it talked about her life and her accomplishments. But Sally Cruz's legacy lives on, and if you don't know who she is, definitely look her up, you know, check out some of her music. You don't even have to know what she's saying. The rhythm is dope, you know. Um, but she accomplished so much, and she contributed so much to black history and black culture, because she identified as a black woman who was born in Cuba. You know, the, you know, and, and, that's, and that's a beautiful thing, you know. So Sally Cruz, we thank you for your contribution to black history and black culture. And we salute you. And that concludes this episode of Everyday Black History. Um, we'll just continue to tune in. And I always thank you all for listening and supporting. And, you know, we continue to, you know, you know, uh, bring, this, bring the black history to light. There's a lot of our history that's unknown. A lot of people that accomplish things that no one knows about. And I enjoy talking about it and sharing it. And, you know, it's, it's always great when I, you know, learn about it and it's it's even better to be able to you know put it out there and share it with people so thanks for the support and please continue to support and stay tuned for the next episode